Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we'll be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with substance use challenges and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. I hope everyone is having a wonderful start to their 2024. In this first episode of the year for us, we've brought Tim Sabers back to host a conversation about the intersection of harm reduction and peer support, moving beyond abstinence-based models. In December of last year, Tim hosted a similar conversation for his Communities of Practice series. In this episode, Tim talks with Jose Martinez of the National Harm Reduction Coalition and Art Tilo St. Amor and Shane McDonald, both of Youth Move National, to get their perspectives on the subject. And without further ado, let's get talking. Hi, everyone. My name is Tim Sobers. I am the Program Coordinator for Workforce Development at the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. Um, this podcast is in reference to the panel that we hosted last December, um, almost two months ago already, which is a little wild. Um, and we are going to continue it today with uh, three out of our four panelists. Unfortunately, as you may, was not able to join us today, um, although we really appreciate what uh, they contributed to the panel last year. It was really exceptional. Um, I am going to ask the panelists who are here with me to introduce themselves in just a minute. Um, first, I'm just going to do a quick visual description uh, so that you guys kind of know what I look like. Um, I'm a Latino man. I am sitting on the floor wearing a Jurassic Park t-shirt. Uh, I have dark green translucent glasses, black hair that's been buzzed, and I'm sitting in front of a gray couch. Um, I'm currently in Oakland in California. Um, and I'm really excited to be joined by Jose Martinez, uh, Tay, and Shane. Um, and I am going to ask each of you to introduce yourselves as uh, and include um, what kind of what area of work you're in and how you understand harm reduction. Um, Jose Martinez, he, him pronouns. Um, I'm originally from New York City, but I'm stationed in Buffalo, New York now. Um, area of work that I'm in. Well, I work for National Harm Reduction Coalition, which is, for the most part, a technical uh, organization that provides technical assistance to different organizations throughout the country um, focused on harm reduction. My role with them is I'm the capacity building and hepatitis C coordinator. I handle a lot of, um, well, almost all of the hepatitis C work. Um, on the East Coast anyway. I provide like a general support system for all the Hep C navigators throughout New York City, whatever that looks like. That could be me, you know, going out, reaching with them to figure out different ways to approach the community. It could be, you know, just, you know, um, professional development, even resume building, stuff like that. Sometimes it's just general, you know, they need, you know, to vent and stuff like that. Um, I do a lot of the peer support work for our organization, too. Um, I initiated a program called Peer Up for National Harm Reduction Coalition that's dedicated to um, reaching and giving, um, reaching the community that's impacted, meaning people who use drugs, people who, you know, are affected by poverty and all of the isms, um, and giving them the skills that's needed to elevate themselves, whatever that looks like for them, because my belief is that... Um, too, it's too common that a lot of organizations will employ the community member, but rarely give them the skills to, you know, get in different positions of power and, you know, in certain conversations that are really important. So peer up um, is our, our focus is to give those skills and to also, you know, uplift those communities to those important conversations. 
I can go next. Uh, hello, my name is Shane McDonald. My pronouns are they, them, and theirs. I am coming to you from the seized and occupied territory of the Nipmuc, Massachusetts, Wampanoag, Penobscot, and many other indigenous peoples, which under settler colonialism is known as Massachusetts. Uh, my formal role is a youth program coordinator. I work uh, in youth social justice for a nonprofit organization called Youth Move National, um, which really aims, in short, to uplift and center the leadership and perspectives of youth and young adults with firsthand and lived experience across youth serving systems. Um, and I can share my understanding of harm reduction, right? It is an approach really rooted um, at its core in personal dignity and agency, right? Much like the work that we do with Move National, um, young people in particular, right, aren't given the right um, and support to um, have agency in their own lives and moving through difficult situations, systems, society at large, right? And that includes um, having that right to make informed decisions on what feels good and true to them and navigating, uh, you know, trauma, ways of being and struggling and just the human experience at large, right? Um, so really harm reduction to me is about fostering that culture, that understanding of compassion and support where people are really, again, encouraged to make those self-determined choices for themselves outside of, um, and I know we'll explore this further, right? A lot of really overarching, um, toxic and oppressive narratives that are being enforced on so um, many of us and particularly young people. So that's me for now. Awesome, I can go next. Uh, so hello, my name is Ark. Telos Saint Amor, uh, which tends to be a long name, so folks tend to call me Tay. My mandatory pronouns are they, them, there, uh, and I work with Shane over at Youth Move National. I'm the executive director, um, but I think really today is going to be a lot of I statements, and I think it's going to be a lot about sort of my own personal lived and and living experience as someone who sort of the words I like to use uh, tries to be in right relations uh, with sort of like you know for lack of a better term, my, my mental illnesses, my relationship to substances. Um, and I think that's really how sort of I uh, approach that this work is from that direct lived and living experience to kind of like, what did I experience? What did I go through? What have been helpful to me? What is helpful to me now? Uh, and really trying to, to hold all of those and find a balance uh, to where, um, you know, we're not necessarily demonizing substance use. You know, I think to me, there's substances I feel comfortable still using. Um, and I think harm reduction is really uh, about that, you know, really holding the whole, letting folks really approach it from different angles and really let them define what literally will reduce harm in their life, you know, and that's going to look like a bunch of different things. And I think it's up to us to, to really hold that and uplift that, that varying perspective. Um, yeah. So I appreciate being here. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to have all of you guys here. I think this is going to be a really exciting conversation, um, continuing from where we were in the panel last year. And uh, kind of to transition us into our next question, um, something that really stood out for me. So we did the panel last year and we had uh, over 300 people attend. And then afterwards, we do an evaluation and we had about 130 people submit um, evaluation feedback. And the majority were extremely positive, right? I would think about all but five of them were people who were like, I really got something out of this. It was very beneficial. I feel like I walked away having, you know, had my mind open a little bit. And then there were a few and they were very, very vocal people who were like, this was the worst thing I've ever been to. This is outrageous. How could you possibly say, you know, they walked away hearing that sobriety and abstinence are bad. 
um, rather than hearing that they're part of a, a dialogue, right, a narrative. Um, and that is one of the main reasons I wanted to to put this panel together was because I hear that so frequently. People who really struggle to hear about harm reduction when they maybe really resonate with an abstinence-only kind of pathway. And so I wanted to ask you guys, you know, where does abstinence fit into harm reduction uh, for you? And just kind of generally speaking as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind jumping in first. I mean, I just think that, you know, um, sort of sobriety, abstinence-based programs, abstinence uh, for the individual is is just a tool. You know, it's like a tool in your toolkit for of, of harm reduction. And I think for some, you know, that's the best way to go. Uh, and I encourage them and welcome them. And, you know, uh, really, really uplifted is just one of several different things to uplift. Um, I just think it's important to also live, uh, uplift and give credit to folks who that is not the best route and that is not the best direction. And, you know, very much so I statements as, as someone who both personally and professionally sort of floats around in this world and, and the field. I just feel the most of the times the the spotlight, the onus, the funding, um, the centering is around abstinence-based only programs. And I think that that's where I struggle. I mean, I think that it's awesome and I support it, but I support it as one of many things. And I think that it's about time that we started focusing on those many things that also exist uh, beyond just those programs. Um, because I also know that sometimes those programs can, just like anything in, in access or have done incorrectly, can cause a lot of harm. And I know uh, my experience when some of those programs caused a lot of harm. And so I had to forge in my own past something that was unique to me. And I think that it's it's a lonely path sometimes. It's It's hard to do that. It's hard to find like-minded people and resources and to feel like you're supported and uplifted um, when really it feels like, you know, if you're, if you're not sober, you're not part of the conversation. And I think that that's really hurtful. And I think that does like a lot of harm. So I definitely think that, you know, abstinence-based programs are included in harm reduction and are needed and important because they're important to other people. It's just not the only thing. And, and the more that we sort of highlight it as the only thing, the more that we're really creating isolation and harm um, and just like leaving folks out there to sort of flounder uh, on themselves and figure it out. Um, and isn't that what harm reduction is it's about reducing the harm, right? Not causing more uh, and, and not being neutral either. So like recognizing the gaps that we have, not being afraid to say that so that we can work on it. Um, you know, that's like what I try to do with myself. Like I take criticism, uh, as a part to like work on myself and reduce harm. And I feel like the more we can have these conversations to where the takeaway isn't a very vocal minority saying, you know, all you did was like, we're allowed to swear. Can I swear on this? Uh, you know, all we did was like talk shit about abstinence. Like, no, we didn't y'all. And then like, that's not what we're here to do. It's just like one of many tools and I think the more we're able to work on ourselves and get our spots ourselves into a spot to be able to hear that, I, I think will be really important, especially if you're in this field professionally, like you need to be able to hear these things without taking it personally, uh, without sort of slanting it uh, into your narrow view. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's my take. Yeah. And so, you know, and obviously we have to talk about the, 
you know, there is this us versus them, you know, thing going on when we talk about harm reduction and abstinence, because, you know, like, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of our messaging could be radical to the point where people can misconstrue it and say, well, what you're saying that, you know, everybody should use drugs. It's okay. Or you condoning it. And, you know, we don't, um, we just, you know, respect the autonomy of an individual, right? Because who could tell us the best way to approach anything but us when we know ourselves? Um, those structures work for some people, though, right? We're not going to sit here like the abstinence-based program don't work. No, there's people who they they thrive under those structures. But we cannot assume that because it worked for one, it's going to work for the second person, right? And that's really what we're trying to, like, push to people, you know? like. Everybody has their unique story, right? Um, and that's what we need to, you know, focus on. Um, for Jose, you know, it was I needed to take care of, you know, my housing first, you know, and then I needed to, you know, find a job worth keeping, you know, and then I had to take care of my drug use. You know, to a lot of people, that timeline don't really work for them. Right. A lot of people, you know, they feel like a person has to be sober in order for them to make, you know, certain decisions. And I completely think, you know, the opposite. One of the biggest um, things that I could say that makes me biased towards the abstinent based model is that I was introduced to arm reduction uh, first before I even experienced a rehab. So I was already taught, like, you know, to, you know, acknowledge yourself, to love yourself. Um, don't talk yourself down because when it really matters, that's all you have, right? So if somebody's telling you to tell yourself that you ain't shit, you know, when you lose it all, what you think? You telling yourself you ain't shit is going to get you out of that hole? I was, no, I was taught to love myself. So my first week, I already got hours and rehab because I refused to stand up and say that I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict because I was conditioned to not even use that language, right? So that's my whole thing about it. And I didn't complete that program because like for me, it was breaking me down to the point where I knew that when I leave this place, I'm not going to be strong enough for me because when we leave this program, we still have to be around our same people who are smoking, drinking and doing all of that with us. And we have to learn how to, you know, be around that place. You know, it ain't no leaving nobody to the side. You know, and that's what that kind of mentality does. Like they say people, places and things. I refuse to stay away from my boy who was there for me, like when times was really hard just because I want to be drug free. So harm reduction taught me how to condition myself to think about where I want to be at. You know, um, to this day, I don't use the same drugs that, you know, had me in a hole, you know, but I'm not writing it out of my life. You know what I mean? Like right now, I prefer not to use that drug, but there ain't no telling if I'm going to lose everything and then, you know, have to find something to cope, you know, and go to, you know, the only thing I know. So, you know, harm reduction just teaches like a different perspective. Like we talk about the in-betweens, abstinence, you know, they they want a person to be sober and that's all right. But what happens if a person's not there yet? Well, that means that we forget about them. That's actually when it really matters, because if we want a person to even get to that place, we have to address the mental health, the history, why they got there, how they got there. You know, um, what can we do to move forward? You know, so if we're not having those conversations in the times that matter, then you know what? We create in a revolving door.
I agree 1000% with what both of you had offered. And I think for me, the biggest issue is that that singularity of focus, right? I think that systems, ideally, they may not be actively designed and running in this way, but ideally systems should be uh, created to increase access and options, right? For people to be able to move through barriers and challenges in order to, you know, be in alignment with themselves internally and externally, right? So, promoting, projecting, forcing folks into this one singular understanding about what it is to be quote unquote functional and well, right, is essentially systems and society assimilating us into ways of being and understanding ourselves and the world around us in ways that I think that we are know are founded in a lot of, right, like these isms, right, and settler colonialism and white supremacy and ableism, all of these different foundational things that are permeating in and out outside of systems, right? So, in, in that sense, projecting absentism as, as, as the one uh, ideal sort of outcome or goal for any individual person is not in line with how these systems should be created. Um, and I think even more so, I, I just I have so much deep compassion and dare I say love, right, for those folks that are um, maybe challenging these conversations, right? Because I think that although it may on a service level come from a place of anger and resentment, I I, I feel a lot of fear with that, right? Especially around these societal narratives around, you know, the best way to support people is to essentially prevent them from doing the thing, right? I mean, um, I think that we talked about this, you know, in that um, panel conversation, but this is a larger conversation than just substance use. It's all of the ways of being, coping, existing, um, you know, with ourselves and in our lives and through struggles and trauma um, that universally or just generally have been sort of pushed this abstinence-based model upon, right? Like self-harm, having a relationship with thoughts, experiences around suicide, right? Um, and a lot of those overarching efforts are very much the, you know, the goal is just to stop people from doing this, right? Um, but, you know, what is the fear of opening up these conversations and really listening to the voices of those who are, have those firsthand lived experiences of being in these spaces, right? And oftentimes what we get to as well when we open up these doors uh, and pathways to having more of these intentional conversations is, is we find out a lot more about these you know, the, the understandable reasons, the societal context and harm and oppressive um, sources for why folks are going through the struggles that they are and maybe leaning on things that um, maybe with, with supports and other ways of, you know, moving through things that they might do differently, right? Um, but all that is to say cannot be singularly focused and echoing what other folks have said, right? Abstinence can absolutely be a self-determined goal in some way, but should never be something enforced upon a person. I think... Shane, just up, uplifting what you've said, you know, as a as a, as a queer and trans person, you know, I experience a lot of uh, U.S. society uh, of uh, systems really trying to push a binary, right? Really trying to get us to devoid complexity, devoid middle ground, uh, devoid fluidity, and just say everything needs to have a simple answer and it's yes or it's no, or it's black and it's white, or it's do this and don't do that. And that's just quite literally like not how anything works. Like humans, nature, earth, life, the planet, everything lives in complexity. And, you know, to, so to Shane's point, you know, thinking that there's just like a singular answer and this is it, you know, is we're still here talking about this. So like, clearly it's not, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like the vast majority of people know about just using as an example, AA programs, and, and yet we're still having this conversation. So I think we, we need to just be able to say, listen, there's not a one size fits all. It is not a singular model. 
the, the proof is like that we're here still talking about it. So let's really start examining the complexity of this, the complexity of people. And yeah, like everyone said, let them have the agency uh, to do what, what works for them. And I think for me, again, going, going back to I statements here, you know, my, my problem wasn't my substance use. My problem was the trauma I experienced. Substance use was the harm reduction from me not feeling loved or being loved both externally or internally and essentially no longer wanting to live. So when faced with that, like major oppression of like houselessness and trauma and abuse and helplessness and hopelessness, substance use was my harm reduction. And so I think sometimes people are like, you know, substance misuse is the problem. And I'm like, Maybe, but it's like a symptom or it's a part of a problem when really the overarching thing that we're really trying to combat is like trauma. And there's a lot of different entry points to that. And substance use is really just a harm reduction version of that. At, at least it was was for me. And I think even for me, that went beyond substances. I mean, you know, I'm sure all of this comes with content warnings, but, you know, I, I was a cutter. Um, you know, I did a lot of things to really just pull me back in, into who I was and where I was at and to harm reduce from that like ultimate end for me. And so I think that harm reduction looks like a whole lot of different things. And it's all us as individuals trying to navigate, I think, I think trauma. So, again, I think that onus is, is just maybe on the wrong thing. And that makes us kind of have a, a narrow, singular view, like Shane was talking about, when in reality, it, it's all complicated. Yeah, I really hear within what you guys are sharing, sort of a parallel to like the way that we've, well, that we're hopefully moving towards evolving how we understand disability as well, um, kind of more towards like this social model of disability rather than a historical, like if you have a disability, it's on you to sort it out. You you have a problem because you're disabled. Whereas the social model of disability really talks about the problem is that society isn't designed to support people with disabilities in accessing the lives that they want to live, that they could be living if we were a better, uh, more functional society. And I hear a lot of the parallels to this idea about abstinence, only substance use uh, or substance use recovery, right? Like you have to stop drinking because you have a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, one of the most common refrains is you're powerless over this. Um, and so you need to kind of let go and let God. Um, and we may actually have uh, maybe more success if we were to look at to what you guys were saying, like, what are the societal factors and conditions that are leading somebody to feel the need to use substances in such a way that they're potentially causing harm to themselves? Um, and to your point, Tay, I was I share this story a lot that I thought I was doing fine. But up until I had to be <laughs> forcibly hospitalized, I was like, I'm I'm doing it. I was drinking probably more than I should have been. I was cutting myself, but I was still holding a job. I was paying my bills. I was going to university. I mean, I was going to my classes, doing everything I was supposed to be doing, quote unquote. And I was like, I'm doing great. This is the best that I can do right now. And then I went to the hospital and they were like, you're super sick and terrible. And until then, I really hadn't thought anything was wrong. It wasn't until the existing systems told me you are unwell that I looked at myself as somebody who was unwell and needed to be fixed. Um, but what, to, to what you said, what I really needed was community and connection. 
um, I didn't need to be isolated from my life and forced into the hospital. I needed to build a community of, of like-minded people who could support me through what I was navigating. Um, and to sort of transition us into the next question as well, something that I've been a little bit more vocal about recently is, is this idea that we're all part of the recovery community. That's something I hear very regularly. You know, everybody in this room is part of the recovery community. And lately I've been a little bit more willing to say, that's not true because the recovery community has consistently told me they don't want me there because I'm not sober. Um, so we're not all part of the recovery community because the recovery community doesn't actually want all of us to be there. Um, and, and through no will choice of my own, originally at this point, I choose not to use that language. Um, but why do you think that there's such a struggle or contradiction between harm reduction and recovery? Well, for one, I, I try to lean away from that language, like recovery itself is a word that I don't use because it indicates that I was broken and needed to be fixed at one point, right? And I, I actually like using the word discovery, right? Because that actually speaks to like my experience because like I had to find myself. I had to figure out like what I wanted to do to my, um, do with myself, um, how I wanted to show up in this world, right? That was like one of my biggest like things that I was wrestling with inside. Like, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? Um, That kind of thing. And like you said, like, you know, with creating community, I was able to put myself around people that saw that also that my issue wasn't like, um, like Ark said, like my issue wasn't drug use. Like my issue was everything else that led to the drug use. You know, like I was in the, I was in a foster care system for like a third of my life. Right. And that could do something to your mind. Um, and then everything else I had to deal with as a Latino and all of that. Right. So it's like, um, drug use wasn't my problem. I had to learn other skills. You know, I had to learn how to deal with my anger. I had to learn how to speak to people because, you know, that's stuff that you get conditioned with in school and all of that. And obviously I only got a GED, right? Um, I had to learn to how to, how to take me and be me and do something with it. And this is why I love harm reduction because harm reduction doesn't focus on you have to be sober, you have to be professional. No, you know what I mean? Like I got a message when on when I was, you know, in a in a messed up position that it was like, um, yeah, live your life, but how are you gonna give back to the community? Because if you just take and take and take and take and then that kind of that's not really balanced. And that's what I needed to hear. I ain't need to hear I need to stop using drugs. I didn't need to hear how how much that I was doing too much with all of this fighting and, you know, spazzing out. I ain't need to hear that because I already I was telling myself that already. So when we talk about like well, harm reduction, harm reduction focuses on everything. Right. Once again. You know, if somebody needs want like, yo, I need to go to detox. I need to go to a rehab. I got so many numbers in my phone that I could call all of that. I'm, is, I'm not throwing my stuff on other people. Get ahead. If that's what you need, I'm going to help you get there. But like it's, it was stated throughout this, you know, this time we've been here, it's about options. Right. Um, And, you know, I feel I feel like once again, what we need to the conversations that we need to start having instead of which model or approach is the best, what we need to do is take everything we know and put it into one basket and move with it. Because the one thing I will say is that obviously abstinent-based um, approaches have worked for people. Rehab has worked for people. Even therapeutic communities, which I'm so disgusted by, worked for people. So obviously there's something there that can be utilized. But then there's the other piece of it where harm reduction has worked for so many people also, 
So how can we take these two approaches and put them into one? And this is a convo that we need to start having even more now, you know, with the opioid settlement funding and all of the money coming into harm reduction now, because see, that's the language that we use is the difference. You know, the abstinence-based approaches belief and words like you're an addict, alcoholic, and you saying that you ain't nothing and harm reduction believes in the different and in, in a different approach, the, the complete opposite. So how can we take those two and put them into one? We can't have harm reduction with um, abstinence-based language and all of that because then it's right back to abstinence-based. What are, how, are we able, how are we able to come together with our language? How are we able to come together with our approaches, right? Because something that was, you know, we spoke about before, sometimes harm reduction lingo and approaches trigger somebody. There's people who don't want nothing to do with drugs no more. And that's cool because that's the experience. But I would still love to work with a person like that. So what would be the middle ground? You know, and I had a conversation like this with a peer in the South Bronx before where the person was like, you know, I'm, you know, I get triggered by this language. I get triggered by looking at this. And it's like, well, what can we do to help you get past that? Because we need you in this conversation also. Once again, I'm not with this, you know, me versus them thing. I'm not with a they're right. I'm, I'm wrong or I'm wrong there or whatever. I'm not with none of that. I believe in a lot of stuff at the same time. I believe that worked for some people. So we have to utilize that. But people aren't willing to have those conversations to let's let's merge the two then. That's why we still haven't gotten past where we gotten past. This is why we still have people calling it a substance abuse crisis. Because we're not willing to have those convos. There's a lot of ego and pride in this when, you know, a lot of other people get affected by this because we don't want to, we, us who are in the position to have these conversations aren't willing to put it aside for a second. If you ask me, there's no difference in the approach, but in how we see things. One person wants people to be sober. Another person wants somebody to be good. It's all the same thing. We all want the same thing at the end of the day. Yeah, and we're going to get into it a little bit later, Jose, but exactly kind of what you're hitting on this, like, people saying I can't have this conversation because it's upsetting to me or it's out of alignment with my experiences. Um, talking a little bit more about, like, what does accountability, training, and education of the peer workforce look like, um, particularly when we're saying I believe in self-determination, autonomy, voice choice, and control, multiple pathways for recovery. Um, but then you're also at the same time saying, but I can't hear about these specific things and I can't be around somebody wants to continue to use, how do those pieces fit together into a cohesive peer workforce um, that's meant to be sharing a, a set of values? Um, so I appreciate you bringing that up because it, it is something that um, we are going to talk about in just a little bit. Um, uh, other thoughts on on why there might be such a struggle between harm reduction and recovery? I know I shared this uh, during the panel as well, right? But I think that it really stems from differing views on what recovery means, right? And I think, again, it's that issue returning to that singular narrative enforced, right? Um, so, and I'll say like recovery TM, right? 
um, really means take these steps to get to this place that we as a system or society believe is good and true for you, right? And what's that founded upon or what that's founded upon rather and what that's shaped around in terms of a definition um, is often rooted in a lot of problematic things, right? Um, and I think that, you know, I think Artelos talked about, you know, binaries in society, right? This binary mindset of recovered versus not recovered and the gatekeeping around that in terms of folks entering the peer workforce, as well as folks just being taken with full consideration and compassion in society at large, right? I think that that perpetuates this struggle. Um, and personally, I will refer to I statements too as somebody with my own firsthand lived experiences, lived and living experiences, right? The enforced narrative of the goal, you know, just don't do it again, definitely didn't serve me as a young person coping with real understandable pain and trauma, right? Um, I think that harm reduction really is about redefining what recovery means. Um, and that's basically taking that universal definition out of it, right? And really putting it on the individual person to self-describe, define for themselves. Um, but in general, is that personal journey towards holistic and self-defined well-being, right? Um, really defining and honoring what health and wellness means to each and every individual person by and for themselves. Um, and then the other piece of it too, right, is it's not necessarily um, recovery, right, or healing, which is something that every human being on the planet goes through, right? I, I think that um, it's difficult for, for a person to be born on the planet and move through the world without experiencing some kind of trauma or losing some level of agency uh, and moving through their lives, right? Um, but in addition, like recovery isn't necessarily hinging on the absence of certain behaviors, right, which again is that sort of singular focus, but again, really developing ways of being and coping um, that are in alignment with a person's goals and inner truth. So again, I think that like harm reduction and recovery can be part of the same conversation. It's just about taking that singular enforced narrative around what either of them mean, right? Yeah, I I, I love all of this um, and and totally agree. So I really hesitate to to you know say the same things that have already been said. But what I what I will say is I think that like. Yeah, these are very much so I statements, but I, to me, a hard line needs to be drawn um, where I, I think in sort of like U.S. settler colonialism society, we're sort of like forced on this like golden rule, right? Treat others the way you want to be treated, which is just like so ridiculous to me, um, because why would everyone want to be treated the same way you want to be treated? It literally makes zero sense. And so I think a big part of me, I'll put a big blanket over this and just call it the helping professions. You know, like if you're in that workforce, if you're in that TM version of recovery spaces, if you are like a, a, a peer supporter or a social worker, or anyone who helps other people, if we can't agree that like we are trying to get that person who we're there to serve happy and healthy and that the only way to get that person ha happy and healthy is for them to define what that looks like, not us, right? To treat others the way they want to be treated, you need to find a different job. And I'm just a thousand percent going to say it. If you cannot take your own ego, your own ideology out of the helping professions to where you are meeting other people where they're at, listening to them, giving themselves agency to what their goals are, what they consider a crisis, and then helping them and support them to get there, you don't need to be in this field. Um, and I'll just say that point blank. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that that's been, I, even that, that I hate even that phrasing, like 
I know you're using the phrasing that that we just use, like the helping profession. But I always think even within peer support, if you're in it to to to, to be like, I'm here to help and fix, it's just not the right profession for you. Um, but within, again, what, what everyone shared, I hear a lot of sort of the roots of peer support, a little bit more specifically through the mental health side of kind of reclamation of power, taking power back from systems to say for ourselves, this is what we actually want to do. This is what would actually be beneficial for me um, as an individual and as a community. And of course, that requires other people to give up power, which they, you know, people don't like to do that. Systems don't like to give up the power that they've built up for themselves. And so I, I think one of the biggest struggles here too, is this idea that in order for us to really say, on reduction works, people can define for themselves whether or not they can engage with substances, what health and wellness and, and a life of, of meaning looks like to them. I have to be willing up willing to give up the power that I have as somebody who's providing paid services to decide this is what wellness looks like for you. Um, and people are really hesitant to do that. Um, but I also think a lot about you know, there's been such a big push recently for like, we have to work with historically marginalized communities more, we have to do better outreach, we need to bring them into the workforce. Um, but in order to do that, in order to access services, you have to say you want recovery, and you first have to say that you are sick or ill, or you have a disease or something's wrong. And then there's surprise when those communities don't want to work with you, <laughs> because they don't want to be told that, right? Um, communities have their own way of making meaning of things, their own ways of understanding what harm looks like, what it, what it doesn't look like. Um, and so I think when we see harm reduction really effectively being implemented, um, recovery sort of doesn't, it stops being a part of it because that's not the purpose. The purpose is how do you as a community make meaning of these things? What would you like your community to look like? And how do I support you in getting there? Um, if at all, because you might choose, I don't want to work with you. Um, I want to work with somebody else. And I think that's, you know, a very valid choice. So um, I think that there's space for people who want to say they're in recovery to be under the umbrella of harm reduction. Um, and I would love to see us being able to move a little bit beyond um, recovery being the goal of everything or even really being a purpose. So I'm curious, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of harm reduction as a theoretical concept uh, through our own experiences. Um, what are some concrete examples of harm reduction uh, that's being practiced right now that you all are familiar with? Um, so. Um, so peer up, you know, we have like this monthly call, right? And um, so you know, I've tried. So with our community, one of the hardest things, um, one of the biggest barriers we experience is like we need to be professional on top of everything else, like the sobriety requirements and all of that. You know, this space is designed to get like the most impacted community members in one space, right? Um. And it has a lot of, um, I forget the word, but there's a lot of focuses with this one group, right? One, a support group, you know, that is harm reduction focused. Um, so have, come as you are, right? Speak as you are. Um, if you want to light a blunt, you want to drink a beer, you want to do what you do, do what you do. I don't care. But while we're doing that, Let's let's talk about how we could approach like all of these situations that we up against. Right. Um, let's talk about how we could, you know, um, you know, make the peer workforce better. What are some initiatives that we need to address? Right. And that's important because, you know, when people feel like 
they are, you know, their value, no matter what situation they're in, it, it brings a lot out of them. For Jose, I needed somebody to understand that I wasn't, you know, I'm not illiterate. Um, I'm really smart. I'm like a sponge. You know, I just need an opportunity. And that's what the universe gave me. And sometimes that's what other people need. Some people need that chance. You know, um, from this group, you know, we was able to go to the Drug Policy Alliance conference and talk about, you know, these same peer workforce issues, you know. Um, and it's important because so, and what I'm noticing is the most the voices that should be in the conversation, they usually not. And it's because of that. It's because people feel like, oh, because they're actively using, they're not going to be up to par. They're not going to bring what we want to the table when we need to bring the community out. We need to like, I'm a strong believer in a lot of these policy conversations that be having behind closed doors. If we have like one or two or three peers in that conversation, a whole lot of stuff would change. A lot of people, when they come with what they believe, uh, per, how a person should be, they is with privilege. That's a privileged thing to tell somebody to be able to look from the outside and say, this is what you need to do when we're not in that with them. So how can we, you know, so the best thing that we can do is we can try to give them different tools so they could continue. This is what this group focuses on because there's nobody that's doing that to them. A lot of these organizations, when they have community or advisory boards, they is still scripted. It's still scripted. No, this is what we want out of them. This is what we want you to ask them. It's not a just tell us what it is. Sometimes that's what we need to hear. Sometimes we need to hear where we're going wrong. How can we hold ourselves accountable if we feel everything we're doing is justified? Um, and that's what we this is this is well, this is my um aim for peer up and the peer gathering, you know is that's the way we can hold ourselves accountable. Let's get the community members in there. And then along the way, you know, who knows? Maybe it might trigger something in the right person where they're like, yo, this is what I was meant to do. Because once again, my issue was I didn't know what my purpose in this universe was. I was lost. I had to figure it all out. It'll be easier if somebody just has a good starting template to figure it out. Definitely. Also, shameless plug for Peer Up. I go to Peer Up uh, as frequently as I can, and I really enjoy the space. So, would definitely encourage people to go. It's great. Love that so much. Um, I have, and and I will say too. I know I'm 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 really here to kind of come from the youth youth end of things, right? But more broadly, right? Needle exchange programs, safe consumption spaces, um, as Jose highlighted with Peer Up, right? Peer-led support groups and initiatives, um, warm lines, especially again, thinking outside of even substance use, right? Um, but also decriminalizing substances. And really, and again, this is maybe more specific to, to um, you know, self-harm and thoughts and experiences around uh, suicide, right? And those conversations, but efforts to move away from carceral um, or those more punitive or agency stripping approaches to supporting people experiencing emotional distress or self-defined crises, right? Um, and I will say again that I, I'm not as familiar of these kinds of supports specifically um, for and even by right young people around substance use and other ways of being and coping. Um, but I know that there is an ongoing effort to make those resources more 
available, right? And I will highlight um, just a couple of groups that I, I became aware of, right? Um, there's a group called Youth Rise, Rise in all exclamation points. It's a global network led by youth um, working to amplify, maximize, and center priorities of young people who use drugs um, and young people affected by drug policies. They advocate to support full spectrum harm reduction at local, regional, and international levels through coalition building, advocacy, and evidence gathering. Um, and I'll also highlight, uh, and that's it for my plug here, right? But Students for Sensible Drug Policy, or SSDP, um, this is supposedly the largest national youth-led grassroots organization creating change by providing a platform where youth and youth-identified adult supports can collaborate, communicate, share resources with, and support each other to generate policy change, um, deliver honest, as they say, drug education, and of course, promote harm reduction. So definitely wanted to uplift those folks. Um, but again, with young people, it's definitely um, maybe a more uh, nuanced or even like an additionally difficult conversation, right? Um, especially for the for those under the the age of consent, right? Um, but again, like these efforts are are continuing to permeate and expand um, across ages, which I'm I'm very grateful for for sure. Yeah, I appreciate all of that. You know, Jose and Shane, all great concrete examples of what harm reduction is and looks like, and sort of context around it. Um, you know, again, for me. You know, I try to look at like, what's the actual problem? What's the thing that I'm reducing harm around? And so for me, you know, really it, it was trauma. So, you know, for lack of a better phrase, misusing substance was my harm reduction. And then when I felt like that was causing additional harm to me or others, or I felt out of control, there was a question of like, well, can I transfer to a different substance uh, that would maybe still harm reduce from the trauma that I'm having until there's sort of like a different way to be in right relationship with it that's a little bit better than the current substance I'm using? Um, you know, the same thing with like cutting. To me, that was harm reduction. And I think it's up to each individual person to be like, what is the what's at the root? What is the root thing that is causing me so much problem and harm? And what are things that alleviate that? And I think all of those things are harm reduction. And I love Shane's sort of definition of systems, like systems at their best can really open up access and it's about resources and about guiding folks. So I think if we have more of that mentality, I think we get a lot closer to those like methadone clinics and free needle exchange programs and safe places to use um, and start walking back uh, from some of these, you know, again, very strict one way only things because uh, you're now you are helping people reduce harm uh, within their life. Um, and so I just think a lot of it is, you know, what does harm reduction mean to you? And what are those concrete examples? Um, and we, I, I see it in a lot of different places. Even So I was uh, born and raised in Detroit. And in a couple neighborhoods a few years back to reduce gun violence, they started using paintball guns. Uh, and it caused a lot of property damage. And it caused a lot of harm. And a lot of people had to go to the hospital. But there was a lot less death. And there was a lot less gun violence. So, you know, we can sit here and critique methods of harm reduction all we want, but if it is reducing harm, I just really feel like it's to, to each their own. Um, and there's about a billion different ways to do it. 
Yeah, I really love that example, uh, that last example, Tay, because I feel like oftentimes when we talk about harm reduction, right, there are the, the needle exchanges in the safe consumption spaces are extremely important. Um, but people can struggle to conceptualize like what this could look like that might impact substance use or people's mental health, even though it may not seem to be directly connected. And so some examples I've heard recently as well are just a lot of, in a lot of the states where there's been a lot of anti-trans or anti-queer legislation popping up, just having spaces for queer and trans youth to even congregate together, uh, being a really significant piece of harm reduction um, because of what they're experiencing in those states. Um, and because of the danger that they're in just by living there, just having a space to be able to go together and see one another and talk to each other um, is playing a role in reducing the amount of harm that they're experiencing um, and may potentially have a long-term impact on their substance use uh, and mental health. Um, and so when we talk about harm reduction and what it looks like in practice, um, it, of course, is important to to create safe consumption spaces and needle exchanges. And, um, you know, if there are folks who are like, I want to do harm reduction, that is you know, something I can't do. There are other ways to be involved in reducing harm um, through some more kind of creative means. Um, the only other person that I want to highlight kind of by name is Indigo Daya um, out of Australia, who has been doing some really, really amazing work for many, many years um, about harm reduction, but really specifically harm reduction through the lens of kind of mental health and self-harm. Um, and they talk about it and showcase it in community art spaces through a lot of art installations and community conversations where people can come together and talk to each other and create art as they talk about harm reduction um, and self-injurious experiences. And I think it's interesting to really explore the intersection of kind of community support and creativity as well um, in some of these places, which uh, I don't know that much about. I'm not super duper creative, but I love seeing other people do it. I think it's very exciting. So I'm interested to hear as well how you guys might address the fear that some peer specialists who are practicing abstinence-only recovery, uh, the fear that they might feel when they're hearing the conversation about harm reduction. Um, and I mentioned earlier in some of the feedback, there were a handful of people who were very upset, who, who did you know express that they were feeling, I'm feeling very personally attacked by what you guys are saying. Um, you know, how might you address that or kind of respond to the people who hear a conversation like this and walk away feeling like, I, they're saying I can't be a part of this workforce. They're saying that I shouldn't, I don't have a place, um, even though that's not what's being said. I mean, I'll jump in and say, I hear the question and I'll answer the question, but you know, it's not for me to address it. I, I think those people need to address that themselves. Like that's clearly not what we said. It really wasn't the topic. We gave a billion like disclaimers and asterisks and, and definitely included abstinence-based models in a positive light as in one of the tools within, you know, the ways in which to do this work. So I think if they're unable to hear that, I think that that work needs to come from within, you know, I think that they need to ask themselves and grapple with the questions of like, why am I struggling to hear diverse opinions? Why am I struggling to hear different perspectives? Why am I internalizing this as like a personal attack and a personal pain? Um, you know, we, we don't know you, so it's, it's not a personal attack. So, so maybe just like do that work yourself and start to really think about why it is you're internalizing those concepts. What are those, you know, threads that are starting to hurt and can you pull on that? 
where does that come from? What is your lived and living experience that may cause that? And I think being able to be critical of ourselves first before we're critical of others, I think um, it can can reduce harm uh, in, in a lot of different spaces and I think is a good place to learn. I, you know, I don't think that we can truly learn if we don't change our behavior. And I don't think we can truly change our behavior if we're not challenged, if we don't enter into sort of liminal spaces where we're comfortable yet uncomfortable, where we can voice I statements in our own perspective, but are genuinely open to hearing other things and changing and adapting and growing. If, if we're not doing that, I, I think we're kind of missing the point. Yeah. And it goes to, you know, the saying, they say, there's no bad student. We just got to question the teachers. And what I'm noticing is that the majority of the people that I have, like this discussion, the whole armor reduction versus abstinent thing, um, they usually not coming from their perspective, their beliefs and all of that. Right. Um, they come in with their teachings, whether that's what they found in school, whether they, what their mentor told them and all of that. Right. Um, and I learned, and I learned after a while that I had to stop taking that personal, right? Because, you know, I'm, I've been, I've been privileged enough to be given space for people to understand. I've have never been in a position where after I'm done speaking or whatever we call that to, with the individual, I've never had someone leave the carvo feeling more angry with me or, you know, just like whatever. I've had good experiences and I know that's not everybody's experience, but I feel like once a per if if the individual lets go is once again it goes to the ego and the pride, you know, because we're prideful of what we believe and what we know, you know, and for somebody to admit that their views were wrong is is a hit. Is a real hit. I'm gonna be honest. This is why these con these conversations can't be typical. This is what it is, and that's what it's gonna be. It's, it takes time, and I've I've learned that also through my technical assistance. You know, like integrating harm reduction into like programs who usually you know go with the abstinent based uh, approach and all of that. And I noticed that it's never one convo though. There's a lot of stuff that has to be broken apart, you know, like organizational policies, even the policies in schools. There's so many students that I spoke to after and they're like, how do I move forward with this information when I was not taught this in school? So that don't tell me that they believe that themselves. It tells me that they have belief in another teaching. Right. And it goes the same thing with, you know, the folks who feel some kind of way, like we're attacking them and all of that. Well, you know what? Like Ark said, that shows that more conversations need to be had. But I don't blame them. I don't blame them, you know, and and it's not even a blame. But if there is, it is called the blame. I blame whoever taught them. And I believe that a lot of people that come from like back in the day where it was only abstinence based uh, approaches, I believe that if harm reduction was a thing, then they would be harm reductionists now. But once again, that's all that was available at that time. That's all. All they knew was if you want to live good, go to rehab. I got to get myself right. I got to do this. Um, A lot of times we don't, we don't acknowledge that harm reduction approaches meeting meaning meaning excuse me meaning meeting people where they at and not leaving them there is not only for the impact of community 
is also for the providers, the people who are going to put their hands and legs into this also. We can't expect people to just see it and be like, oh, yeah, that is the way. No, you know, we need to teach folks. And this is where people, this is why the friction stays where it's at, because nobody is acknowledging that. Like what you expect people to, just because they've been doing public health for like 10, 20, 30 years to like, they're going to be experts at this. Now we have to show people, we have to teach people and we have to show them also that we got to give them reasons why that other approach is played out now. We have to show them more people who are like, Look, I'm an active user, like I've actively used and I'm holding down this organization. This is why we're talking about diversity and inclusion of our people. I would love an ED of a, of a prominent organization to say, yeah, I get high every single day. I'll be high when I'm on meetings with y'all. I would love to see that because it shows that we're in a different uh, 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 part of our, you know, of this journey. Um. And it's possible because a lot of our leaders in this field are active users. This is how I know that it's possible. But there's still that stigma and all of that. And it's really, once again, it's not because people believe it. It's because that's societal norms. This is why whenever I do any training, I tell people like this, I'm not telling y'all this is the right way. I'm just giving you a different perspective because sometimes that's all we need. A lot of stuff is black and white to people. This is why I said that when people talk like stuff about people needing to be abstinent, I say that it's coming from a privileged place, you know, because you're just looking from the outside, even for them people that were in that life that were using, that's coming from a privileged place too, because you would talk by those people. You know, um, we have to put all put ourselves in a learning position where we we willing to like unlearn what we know and just like keep it moving and with new information because we are on 2024 and we're still going with education and information that came out 60 years ago, 70 years ago. And it's not, not that it's not going to work in this time, but more stuff needs to be added onto it. You know, the whole one glove fits all, you know, that's the problem is that we, you know, it's still that, um, media, when we hear the media talk about uh, of drug use, we see the way they talk about it. You know, when we hear uh, reports, we hear reports and and all of this other stuff, how they 100,000 deaths. You really think that's because of fentanyl? 100,000 deaths, two years straight. And I put my, I bet three years if when we get our numbers for last year and we still think it's fentanyl. Nah, it's our approaches. Because remember, the first year were 100,000 deaths, the DEA put out Operation Overdrive, which was meant to put agents in all of the impacted communities. Not no, yo, we need to put more money into more programs to be open, like or harm reduction organizations. No, none of that. No, none of that. No, we're going to put agents out. We're going to arrest our way out of this one again, guys. And that's wrong. This is it's adding on to all of this us versus them thing. Um, and COVID, once all programs and everything from McDonald's to the harm reduction agencies was closed, all resources taken from our people, they had a problem with people using out in public and using the bathroom out in public too. But meanwhile, they closed everything. They closed every single thing. Parks, McDonald's, Starbucks, all of the above. What do you expect them to do? It all adds on to what people think, because the first thing that Cuomo said about that was we need to arrest um, the people using drugs, but leave the homeless people alone. 
That's added on. That's added on to everybody's beliefs. So we need to approach things differently. We in 2024, we need to start talking about 20, 2024 approaches now. Just our convos have to be different. Everything has to be different. Because look, mental health is at an all-time high these last two years. Suicide's been at an all-time high. Oh, you better believe that our community members are included in that. Because there's no support. There's no support for the abstinent base um peers, for the other peers um of that that are into harm reduction. There's no support all around. This is this is why we at a time where we need to just let it all go and we need to come together. Stop adding fuel to that fire of it's me versus you. No, we end this together. Because let me tell you, any person that's part of that abstinence-based approach, yo, you anything happened, God forbid, you have to start using again, you're back to square one. And guess what? That beat-me-up mentality ain't going to get you out of it. We got to stop it with the us versus them thing. That's the main problem. We all in this together. Yeah, I appreciate so, so much of what both of you offered. And I think that what I'm what I'm going to say, I think, is in, in line with those things. Um, and, and for me, I think... Uh, this this really makes me think of, and unfortunately, it's very much glossed over as folks are getting oriented to these roles of peer support, right? But the the foundations from which this workforce emerged from, right? Um, back to what I defined in terms of systems, right? Um, where ideally they should be increasing access options and uplifting um, folks' individual agency, and that's not happening, right? I think a big reason why this workforce and peer support exists is to be facilitators of folks reclaiming that agency, right? Reclaiming that right to have options and self-determined ways of moving through not only systems but beyond systems and and out into the world and in, in, you know through their lives right um so i mean i think that that's a piece of it right and i think too i think tim maybe you, you said something around uh you know the values the core values of peer support and i think because right similarly to the to the roots of why this workforce exists respecting autonomy autonomy and self-determination um are core values in peer support right so absolutely celebrate um and uh appreciate those who themselves have found abstinence-based recovery to be helpful for them but it is not within our peer role to project promote um or enforce any narratives outside of what that person that we're supporting feels is good and true to them, right? So whether that is abstinence, whether that is a way of approaching healing, whether that is how we come to define recovery and healing for ourselves, right? Um, it's just not within our foundations, right? And I imagine too, right, as similarly to what I said before, right, I imagine that there's a lot of fear involved with opening up these conversations and moving away from that, of course, abstinence, right? Um, it might come from these abstinent, abstinence models being imposed upon them and forced upon them, right? It may come from their own experiences of losing folks or seeing those quote-unquote negative outcomes for folks in their personal lives and even professional lives, right? Um, that's real. And again, uh, as you know, maybe the, the grassroots history behind why this for workforce exists is getting a little bit more glossed over as time goes on. There's also um, a lot of a lot of concern of folks within this workforce um, at large, right, about this role being co-opted, manipulated. Um, so I imagine that folks in these spaces and in these roles as well might um, be in that sort of uh, frame of reference and headspace because of those like singularly promoted system narratives and that push for peers to honestly just assimilate to and enforce those system goals and narratives, which for the most part 
are these abstinence based. We just need to prevent folks from doing the things that we feel um, are getting away from them being functional and well in the world, right? Um, all things that I continue to challenge, right, and get on my soapbox about. And I think too, Shane, to go off what you're saying, when systems tell us that they want us to be functional and well, what do they mean? They mean we need you, we need your labor. Like we are a capitalist society and we need you clocking in at 8 a.m. and doing your job, you know? So I think again, it's about like, what is the ultimate goal? Is the ultimate goal capitalism and we just need labor out of folks so if you can show up to a job then like yay you achieved it or is the ultimate goal for individuals to find happiness and healthiness in the ways in which they define themselves you know so i think really looking at those sort of like capitalist undertonings uh, of sort of like the labor that must be produced uh that sort of hide in these conversations i i think are really really important too. And I think when you when you do that, I think it starts to maybe strip away some of the the mystery, you know, like um like dress codes, right? Like m- men don't need to wear fancy suits and nice watches in order to like do their job and women don't need to do XYZ, right? It's just more and more of this binary white supremacist capitalist thinking around like this has to equal this and it it literally doesn't you know so maybe just like finding out what that that goal is and and maybe you need to to readjust definitely and i said this during the panel as well but i think it bears repeating here that this shift to focusing on how much money peer services can save systems has really caused a lot of problems in the appropriate development of what peer services could be because they've been twisted into this thing that now is meant to, you know, we can use a peer recovery support specialist to get someone to adhere to their treatment plan and take all their meds and, you know, become sober. We can save the local hospital X amount of money or the local inpatient unit X amount of money. um, And therefore the peer services have value. And so we've shifted into this capitalistic understanding of what it means to bring value as a service in what's meant to be a helping profession, a a role that's, you know, uh, based upon genuine human connections, rather than looking at the outcome being, by the end of our services, maybe this person's continuing to use substances at the same level that they were when we first started, and they feel just a little bit more supported in the world and they feel less, you know, isolated or they have a better understanding of their substance use or they just got to meet with someone for six months. And that's that to me is significantly more valuable than any amount of money that we're ever going to save systems. Um, And to be on my little soapbox for a minute, like these systems and our government exist to serve us. That is their purpose. I do not exist to save them money. They exist to put money into my well-being. Uh, and so I'm never going to approach it from the lens of like, how can I help you guys save money? Um, and so I just think that when we look at it through that lens, we really lose sight of what peer support is and what it really could be. Um, and I also just want to tag on Jose, what you said about, you know, just the, the way that people learn things. Um, we did a community of practice last year over the summer that was about, um, exploring the language we use in peer support to talk about ourselves, to talk about other people, to talk about recovery, what words are we using and what do they really mean? And the majority of attendees kind of came back and said, like, I didn't know I was allowed to use other language, but I didn't know I was allowed to say I don't I don't identify as a person in recovery. I've never been given that option before. 
Um, and so they were like, well, now that I know that I can say that, that's what I would choose. I would choose different language, but I've never had the option before. No one's ever told me I could pick someone something else. And there was a lot of fear to what Shane was saying. People were saying, but if I don't say I'm in recovery, then I can't be a peer specialist. And I, then I, I'm not allowed to be part of this workforce. And so like how much of this is just because it's the way it's always been. Right. And there's, there hasn't been space for other things. Um, cause I agree. I was, I think we are all moving in the same direction. It's just that we're all stuck in different boxes and there hasn't been enough dialogue or opportunity for other choices to be made. Um, so within kind of all of this, I'm interested, this is something that's come up a few times, you know, kind of talking about like who's best suited to be in this workforce and what are our foundational values, but where does accountability fit into all of this? Um, how does accountability fit into the conversation about peer specialists upholding their values as it relates to harm reduction? Um, you know, we talked about some of them earlier, but self-determination, voice choice and control, uh, empowerment, mutuality, um, multiple pathways, you know, how do those things fit and where does accountability fit into those things? Um, just as we're, as we're building our workforce. Yeah. So I think that accountability really involves, and I've said this, right. I, I feel like I'm, I'm repeating myself a lot, but it's important, right? It really involves respecting individual choices first and foremost, and then doing that intentional checking in with and challenging ourselves when we find we are imposing external values or expectations on those that we seek to support. Right. Um, so it's really examining maybe biases around, um, substance use and other means of being and coping, right? So it makes me think of, and I, I shared this during the panel, but the following questions to sort of ask ourselves, especially those who are in these peer roles, right? Why do you hold that abstinence model if you do, right? Has it been pushed on you in your own lived and living experiences of healing and navigating systems? Is it the narrative and the environments you work, right? Are you feeling this sort of push or pressure to uphold those things? Um, and then two, um, maybe most important, right? Is it possible to you to hold your own values around what healing recovery, quote unquote, and wellness, quote unquote, right, mean to you without projecting them on those that you support? And if the answer is no, that's not peer support. You need to find another <laughs> workforce to practice in. And ideally, maybe just check in on that regardless of where you might be going next, right? I couldn't so, agree with that more. Oh, sorry. Go, you good, Jose. Go for it. No, no. Get ahead. Right, get ahead. I'm sorry. Get ahead. I'll be real fast. I'll be real fast. I, I couldn't agree with what Shane is saying more. And I think to add on to it, I think accountability needs to be within systems and organizations as well, you know, because I think a lot of the times, I think a lot of the times systems want us to focus on individual accountability. They want us to focus on the individual who needs to change, the individual who needs to self-care, or the individual who's like exceptionalized as resilient, right? But when really the accountability, the need for change should be on the system, should be on those systems enforcing broader narratives, enforcing these norms, enforcing this uh, oppression, um, and it's important, right, to have personal accountability. I'm not saying that a thousand percent. We should have that. But the more systems can burden shift accountability off themselves for doing harm and put it on the individuals themselves to deal with it, the more that we're really getting away from systemic change and difference. And it's just going to take so much longer. And I think that's really where the true 
insidious nature of all of this lies is that like, while we're having these conversations as individuals, the systems are out there still chugging away and still very much so doing that and creating a much broader atmosphere, a broader society of these things that have a way to like trickle down through fear, right? Like Shane said, like you may be afraid to actually say yes or no to some of these questions because you may lose your job. And so that accountability actually needs to be on the supervisor, the ED, the CEO, the system itself to not sort of trickle down oppressive uh, sort of like policies and narratives that really don't serve anybody. So yeah, wanting to hold the system accountable as well. Yeah. Um, and I kind of have, it may sound like a pushback, but it's more of an addition to what you were saying, Art, because like, yes, um, organizations need to hold themselves accountable, especially if they don't know what they're talking about. Like one thing I noticed with a lot of organizations, they're headed by somebody that like maybe worked close to harm reduction, but not really in harm reduction. So they not really there. Right. Um, I very much agree with that. But one of the things that I advocate the most and I and, you know, with peer up, I said it right on the mark. A lot of organizations, they like giving our community members just enough for them to do the job, but not to put themselves in a better position. Right. And I always like talking from a realistic point of view. Right. Like take me, for instance, I think I shared this in the other panel, but one of my um first interactions with that made me realize I needed to check the way I used my drugs was I was given the privilege of supervising an outreach site for a harm reduction organization in, in the city, St. Anne's Corner Harm Reduction. Um, and one day my supervisor came to pick me up after, you know, we shut down the outreach site and I was so drunk. I was drunk. It was, but look, my reasoning was it was snowing I figured, let me get some drinks in me to warm me up. It was so cold out there, right? Um, but he saw that I was drunk, right? We drive into the organization to drop everything off. And he goes, you know, you messed up, right? And I was like, what? You know, and he's like, I know you're drunk. And I took a real bold stance with him. I was like, so what? Like, what are you, what are you coming to me for? Like with this? And he, his response to me was, look. It is what it is. You're not fired. You're not in trouble. But you already have a reputation just because you're a Latino. Like, you have two options. You're either going to add on to that reputation or you're going to prove them wrong. That's the options you have. You know, and that's what I needed to hear. Is I didn't need to hear I need to stop drinking. I didn't need to hear anything else but that. And it made me think. I was like, you're right. You know, because I'm never the type to get a position and I'm good with having that position for 10, 20 years. I'm not with that. I need to elevate. And I'm sure a lot of my people feel the same way. Right. So the reason why I brought that up was because there's this whole narrative in organizations that because we're in harm reduction, that a person because they hired somebody who uses drugs, they have to accept and tolerate certain things. Right. When we talk about the six principles of harm reduction, we talk about being pragmatic and realistic, meaning that we do not deny the harms that come from drug use. Now, I know for a fact nobody's going to hire somebody who comes in every day and is not in every day. 
So because we're in harm reduction, does that mean that we cannot talk to our community members about that? Actually, I, I, Jose strongly believes that if you don't have that conversation with that individual about at least managed use, you are actually adding to the harm. Because let me tell you something, there's a lot of organizations that do not tolerate it at all, that are don't agree with harm reduction, point blank, they're not with it, they're not even trying to make excuses about it. And if we really talk about empowering our community, we have to give them not only the job skills needed to elevate, but also the life skill needed to elevate and maintain outside of harm reduction. You. So my thing is, I would rather... If I have a relationship with a peer and I know that they kind of in a chaotic part of their drug use that can affect them, whether it's on this job or outside somewhere else, I feel like I have to give them that conversation. I have to talk to them. And it's not going to be in a pacifying way. It's not going to be in a in a um, derogatory way where I'm just dogging them out. No, but I'm going to be honest with them. Like, I would want somebody to tell me. If I'm messing up, please tell me. Because, like, I, if nobody tells me, I'm going to feel I'm doing good. I'm going to feel I'm all right. Right? So... And that's really the difference between the harm reduction approach and any other approach is because we acknowledging that we acknowledging what comes from the drug use and we're trying to help you maintain past that. So how are we having those conversations? Let me tell you somehow there's so many organizations that they hire somebody that used to use and then that person goes back into a chaotic part of their drug use and that person gets written off. That's wrong. And harm reduction, when you hire somebody with a, a, a history of drug use, you are signing on to everything that comes with that. And that means providing that support, especially if you're a harm reduction organization and have connections to help that person. There's no reason why that person should be left out and lose everything that they don't work hard for and go back to living in the street. But the reality is that if we're not having those conversations about managed use and, and, and managed use and anything else that the person has access to, we're kind of adding to that. And that's the part that we're not doing. We're not telling our community members where we're going wrong, all of that. We're not, we're not creating the community or the connection. Um, so yes, organizational accountability. Like including our community. And if you don't know, then say you don't know so that like you can be helped. But then also there's the uplifting the community part of it. And what does empowerment mean to the organizations? What level of empowerment you want to give this individual? Like my supervisor, one thing my supervisor tells me is I would love for you to supervise me. And that's his way of saying like, if I, if you could get a position that's higher than me and I plan, you be my, I don't mind it. I will give you the skills to get there. And if that's not the approach we're taking with people, then you know what? We adding on to it. Because let me tell you something. I don't want my people to be in the same position like forever. There's people who I got New York State peer certified with that they still doing the same exact position they was doing while taking the class. And it's not their fault. It's because what ambition is the organization putting in them? What, what level of responsibility do they have? Because that's what worked for me. I told you I was in a chaotic part of my drug use. I supervised the outreach site. That was important as hell to me. And it took my supervisor pulling me up like, look, you sure this is the route you want to take? We have to have those conversations on all ends, on all ends, so that we be good. I want to be up in these meetings that I'm with, that these decision-making meetings with a bunch of my peoples that I used to get crazy with.
There's no way I could do that without giving them everything, the skills to maintain their job and the skills to keep on, the socializing, the managed use, everything. My fourth for going on a tangent, but this, yeah, this is real close to my heart. No, not a problem at all. And it really wasn't a tangent at all. I mean, I think it's really hitting at this, these pieces of accountability, right? Like, you know, what you're hitting on are our all parallel things that I talk about with a lot of employers who receive TA from us. Um, you know, how do I retain my staff? What am I supposed to be doing with peer specialists? What does it mean to have somebody with lived experience on staff? And we have to have that conversation of like something I talk about in all of my trainings that I do about workforce development is that if you're hiring somebody who's a peer, you are agreeing to participate in radical systemic change um, because of the history of the peer movement because this person is coming to the table saying, my career depends on me talking about my lived experience. Um, and are you prepared for that? And what that means, do you have appropriate policies in place? Are you expecting everybody to be two years sober? What happens if they have a return to you? So they're struggling on the job. Is it instant desk duty? Um, you know, what are the opportunities for promotion? And, and to what you talked about, Jose, professional investment, personal investment. How are you supporting these people that you're bringing into an organization? Um, and do you even understand like what the peer ethos is, what peer work is supposed to be? Um, or are you hiring somebody because it was part of your grant requirement? Um, or the other piece that we see coming up more frequently now is, is everybody claiming that they have lived experience, right? Anybody in any position, any level saying, well, I have lived experience, so I get to speak on behalf of peers. Um, therefore, we are all part of the peer umbrella. And you know, when I talk about peer work, I'm talking about a very specific skill set that you've built through training and education, um, a service maybe that you're providing, um, and then to see other people like in executive director positions or director positions, they're like, well, that's me, or I'm doing, you know, peer case management. Like, it's not what we're talking about. Um, and we're seeing that systemic co-optation. So yeah, definitely appreciate everything that you guys shared, Jose. Definitely not, <laughs> not a tangent at all. Um, so you've talked about this kind of a lot um, throughout this, but I think it's it's worth bringing up again. It's the only question we didn't get to in the panel. Um, but I'm interested to hear more about what you guys think the intersection of education, professionalism, and harm reduction can look like. Um, because I think that that is where we struggle. And just to give a little more context, Jose, you sort of literally just talked about this, but one of the biggest fears that I hear from employers is, well, if I hire somebody who's actively using Am I just expected to have them be intoxicated at work all the time? Um, you know, we have a zero use policy at work. So what does that look like? Um, so how do all these pieces fit together? People who are still using, who maybe want to work um, and and go into these agencies that maybe have different expectations. Um, you know, we could look in, your t well, in New York City anyway, you could look in your typical um, um, syringe service program and you can see that a person's use have nothing to do with the job, right? Um, but you also, like I mentioned before, you also see that, you know, without certain conversations, you know, chaotic use can be a barrier to the individual completing their job and elevating in the organization, right? And my whole thing is like my, what my experience always looked like in harm reduction anyway, this is why I feel like I'm more blessed than your typical person is that, you know, people have, allowed me to, you know, to go through my stuff, right? Um, but at the same time, give me different ways of looking and approaching things. Like, for instance, the conversation my supervisor had with me about being drunk on a job, 
that was perfect. And his suggestion was this, right? Um, because if you're telling somebody where they're going wrong without a suggestion, then that's kind of like you disciplining them, right? And I think that's the difference between like a lot of approaches. His thing was like, you know, if you feel you need to drink on the job, like, can you drink like an hour before you get on a job? Or, you know, is there a way you could wait to the end of your shift, like where it's closer, where nobody's going to be impacted? Like there were suggestions, right? My actually, I, 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 I told them straight up. I said, I'm going to be honest. I'm not even going to drink no more on the job. Like, I appreciate you like coming to me like this. Right. But it's really about education too. Right. Because throughout the whole thing, I'm coming, I have a GD. I don't have a college diploma. I don't have, I don't know systems like that. I just know the ones that I'm oppressed by. You, you understand? So like I said, sometimes you have to give somebody like some kind of responsibility and have them maybe that like that's planting a seed for a different flower to grow. And that was what it was during that time, too. So, yeah, I was being taught about managed youth, but that's only one part of it. I also had to learn how to navigate also. Right. Because drugs for a lot of people allows them to socialize comfortably because a lot of people are a people person. I was not a people person at all. Like I. I to this day, like I still have like issues communicating certain things, but compared to back then, oh, way better, right? So, um, while we're talking about managed youth, so that we don't be leaning towards only an abstinent base, we're gonna talk about managed youth, and we're gonna talk about how we're gonna start talking to people, right? We're gonna start giving people different mo of uh, different um models that they can use, like hey, um. And we, this is one that we all know the best. If you watch Bad Boys, Wusa, how can we teach our people how to Wusa, right? That's one of the hardest things for our community members because of the life we live. We're so reactive. A lot of people that's homeless and in a certain lifestyle, they don't, they are not giving the, um, the, the liberty of having time to step back. Sometimes you need to make a decision right then and there. That's where that fight or flight thing comes in in our head where we have to start teaching our people different, right? So, all right, let's say your supervisor tells you something you don't like. How are you going to approach that? Right. And then now that's job skills and that's managed use skills. Now everything else starts falling into place. They start wanting to learn about the organization, how the organization runs, which in my opinion, the way I see everything is usually all the same to me, like probably different names per position, but stuff like that, that our our people, because you go to a McDonald's job, they're not telling you that. They're not telling you that. They're telling you how to do your job. And then that's it. That's the difference, though. That is the difference is, look, this is how this works. This is how this works. This is what you can do, offering a bunch of trainings also. Usually a lot of people, they give the peers the trainings needed to do their job. Nah, how about giving them something about putting in grants too, you know, or whatever they want to do, supervising trainings, you know, stuff like that. My whole thing about it is whatever you have access to, give it to our people. That's the whole point of peer up too. That's what I, whatever I got uh, access to me. I hope the peers can reach out to me and and I could give it right to them. I love that. Uh, again, Jose, drop drop a knowledge like just phenomenal. Um, yeah, and I think something that really impacted me, Jose, about what you said is that like all of that, what you just described is harm reduction. You know what I mean? Like, can you drink that hour before your shift? Can you drink that hour just before? 
you're mad at you're doing harm reduction, right? Like you're you're in it having that complicated conversation, trying to reduce harm in the moment. And I just think that that is so uh, beautiful. And I think, Tim, to what you said, and Jose, you talked about this too, is like, what did you expect? Like, like when you're hiring these folks, like you, you have to be hiring them for their holistic, authentic selves. Um, and if you're like, you need lived experience, right? Like we talked about that. That's a big thing now. Well, what comes with that? Like a full person comes with that. So I think again, getting clear on like what the goal is, you know, like Jose, use your like McDonald's example, like, are, are you using, but you're still flipping burgers? I mean, if you're still flipping burgers, like you, like you're getting the thing done, you know? So like, what's, what's the true goal? Um, because I, I personally hate the word professionalism. I just feel like it's just like seeped in white supremacy. It's barriers, it's gatekeeping, right? I think it's about really, are you harming yourself or others? No, great. Are you being respectful and affirming to people? Yes. Awesome. Well then like you're doing good. You know what I mean? Like we, we don't need this sort of like professionalism to, to cloud it. So I would think one, I think for, for people find out what you want to do, what you're passionate about and what you can do for organizations. Think about that full person and what's the goal. What's the actual job you need done and start stripping away all of these other words and barriers just to get to that. Um, and to question the why. I think the why is always important. You know, I think we, you know, Jose talked a lot about like education. People don't know better. They know what they were taught, you know. So question the why. Why is that the goal? Why is this the way I think is the only way to get there? Is that the right goal? Is that the right thing to get to? You know, always be sort of questioning it as well. And I think that that's really important. And I think the last thing, a, a part of this was education, right? And I think that that is a big word. I believe in education so much. I feel like it's absolutely so important, but I think what's more important is what you do with it. So like you have to have education, you have to have training, but you also have to have that action, that changed behavior, that implementation. And as Jose said, if you don't have the opportunities to do that, well, then you're doing a disservice. I think that what I'll, I'll be sharing is definitely uh, reminiscent of and, and honestly, in a lot of parts, echoing what, what has already been said, right? Um, even with some of those like key words, right? So I think that it definitely it's that issue of vetting and gatekeeping around who is well, quote unquote, my air quotes, uh, or functional, right? Enough to enter a particular role. Um, I think, you know, similar to what was shared, we really need to question and challenge what professionalism, again, quote unquote, even means, right, in general and within peer support. Um, like I've shared right around those narratives of health and wellness of mind and body, there's often this like typical functional or ideal, all quote unquote, right, set of standards held by systems in society. And those that deviate from or don't assimilate to that are considered abnormal, dysfunctional, unhealthy, um, or even as I shared during the panel, right, even dangerous to society um, in need in tr of treatment or fixing, right? It's that myth of normal, right, as, as Artelis was sharing, right, that really centers older, white, cisgendered, heterosexual Christian men, right, which is not the world that we live in. Um, and I think that we really need to deconstruct these narratives in general, 
um, but also again around these conversations around harm reduction. Um, and I'll also share, right, just that, you know, it's like a tagline for us at this point, right, that lived experience is professional expertise. I think that that is something that we continue to have to advocate for, and it's often challenged within our roles, even by the folks who supposedly see the value in our funding these roles to exist, right? Um, but it's absolutely like a part of the reason why these roles are so important and unique, right? And I think that comes with education, right? I think that a lot of folks uh, with firsthand lived experience across a variety of lived identities and experiences are being called in to educate those, um, particularly those like system stakeholders and how to approach this work in a better way. And then often that's that's sort of taken on a service level or sort of manipulated or not really taken seriously, right? Um, so really just emphasizing those things as well. And I think a lot of this, most of this, right, is about a paradigm shift, both as individuals, we've talked about that need for individual self-reflection around all of these biases and preconceived notions about what we understand around this conversation, as well as interpersonal, and then on, on a systemic level too, um, because ideally these systems would become more accessible and option heavy, right, um, and less singularly focused. But in the meantime, peer support, like we really exist as facilitators and conduits of that meaningful change that we're seeking to promote on a greater level too. Um, so it's important that we really like hone in on that um, with education, with challenging professionalism and all these other overarching and problematic and oppressive, ableist, right, gatekeeping narratives um, around what it means to hold these work uh, roles, right? Yeah, I would love to see a, a much stronger focus on recognizing that education doesn't have to mean formal education. Um, like there's such a strong focus on that um, and something that we talk about a lot and especially when people are wanting to hire folks is is sort of do you want them to have a specific level of education or do you want them to have a specific skill set to do the job um, because you could learn those skills just by being in community or navigating the world or whatever may have been um, even having a peer certification doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a good peer specialist. It just means you took the class and you passed the test. Um, and I think that that's something that we really need to be exploring a little bit further. We've kind of put all our eggs in one basket with these and there isn't always a strong enough focus on like, but do you actually understand the values? Can you actually do the job? Um, you know, do you, do you really understand what's being asked of you? Um, and can you do those things? Um, so I would love to see that continue to grow as well. Um, all right. So we only have a couple questions left, um, but I'm interested to hear as we're sort of moving towards wrapping up, um, what do you think the future of peer support could look like um, as we are hopefully starting to grow beyond centering abstinence-only models? Again, I'll definitely be reiterating some things I've shared before, but um, right with co-optation, unfortunately, peer support in many ways has been misconstrued and co-opted where it exists, right, primarily by manipulating the role to be more of a clinical, traditional provider role, right? So examples, and I've shared this before, right, include things that go against our core values of mutuality and breaking down power differentials, like having peers become certified and responsible for distributing medications, or even being a, a person's representative payee and holding their money, right? Um, but other examples include pushing peers to push non-clinical and non-consensual treatment quote unquote, goals and approaches, um, which can include enforcing of these abstinence-based narratives, right? So I believe 
uh, with enough collective advocacy and meaningful system reform that we can really challenge this manipulation of the role, solidify the ethics and values that we hold sacred to this work, which I know is an ongoing effort and folks in this workforce and across this workforce have been organizing and advocating in this way. Um, and to really recenter the core sentiment that navigating life and the struggles within it should be self-determined, right? With supports that uplift every person, especially, um, and I will share, right, every young person's agency across their experiences of trauma pain, coping, and navigating systems. Um, and it would also uh, recognize the value and importance of harm reduction for peer supports themselves, right? Um, and challenging the narrative that one, again, must be recovered by one specific definition or any definition, right? Or fit a specific version of what it means to be well or functional, to be successful, appropriate um, for these roles. And that's what I'll share. Something I've been working on is like introducing the peer workforce to you know, organizations and entities outside of like the clinical, you know, environment, like us outside of like SSPs and, you know, just MOUD programs too, but introducing them in other places that matter where our people um, frequent the most. I'm in New York City. I'm working with the Department of Homeless Services um, on including peer workers in there. Um, you know, because I'm surprised that this conversation even just started last year when that's where the majority of our people are, you know. Um, so um, not only that, but like we spoke about, you know, just changing the norms on a lot of things that keep our community out. The fact that we have a a, 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 a professional requirement and a sobriety requirement and a lot of orgs. Um, that kind of leaves about like 70 or 75% of a community, you know, out and stuff like that. So my, my, my focus is going to be over these next few years is how, how can you better treat our community, um, hold yourself accountable, but then how can we also uplift our peers and community members to want to do more than this? Because once again, you know, harm reduction, it can make, it could be a person's, um, where they elevate themselves or it could be somewhere where they keep themselves stagnant. And I think that we're on the latter part of it, you know, with like everything I explained about the peers being in certain positions for like a long um time, you know, I'm kind of just like tired of like having certain meetings and seeing the same faces, same unimpacted faces. So like, I hope that, you know, at one point in time, we can have our people in those really important, you know, convos. And, you know, that that will probably be the focus of my work over the next few years. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah, both Shane and Jose agreed emphatically with, with everything you're saying. Um, I mean, I can maybe talk about hopes. Like, I hope that we see more funding. Um, I hope that we see livable wages. I hope that we see increased benefit packages. I hope that we see, you know, self-care built in to benefits and to pay and to systems. And I hope, I, I mean, I love y'all and I love this conversation and I'm here for it and I will have it all day, but I would love to stop having this conversation and to move past it and to move forward and to start doing the action and start doing something different. So my hope is that 
we don't have to have these conversations in the future. My hope is that we're somewhere else uh, where we can really start centering on that individual and again, reducing their harm and helping them get to that healthiness and that happiness, however they define it. I mean, like how many times are we going to ask the same questions over and over again? Like, y'all, come on. Like, we need to start moving because while we're busy doing this, people are living it and they're experiencing a, a magnitude of harm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what everyone shared. I um, especially resonate with this kind of like, can we just do something? I tend to be a little bit more of like, let's just do it. Let's just get it done. Um, and I know I'll, I'll share kind of personally as well. What I would love to see moving forward is a movement resurgence of of the peer movement um, and a willingness to stop looking to systems for validation um, and to stop making all of our decisions about, can I get into the next room with, with systemic folks? Can I get the next round of funding? And And more about, can we just stand in our own power and do peer work the way it's supposed to be done um, and just find grassroots funding streams or work together as community. Um, I would love to see us stop sacrificing our power at the altar of uh, systems across the country. Um, that would be my goal, would be to see to see a reclamation of power again. Um, so really big thanks for everything that you guys have shared. I wanted to ask any final thoughts before we close out. Um, just one thing, well, the thing is we, we have to find, we have to find the common ground and we have to find it like really soon. We're in a really important time in harm reduction and just public health in general. You know, um, we have a hep C elimination day. We met the, and the epidemic, you know, of HIV elimination, um, they, we met it, right? And now we have hep C to worry about. We have, uh, uh, like, just, it's, I call it drug poisoning, you know, like a drug poisoning crisis with our community. You know, um, we at a time right now where whatever we believe, we just need to put it to the side. It ain't been working. And as we, because the more we add it with each other, trying to decide what's the best way to go, people are dying. You know, people are dying. People are being pushed to the side, you know. Um, and at some point in time, we're going to have to, you know, decide amongst ourselves, like, what's worth, you know, our energy, um, what is worth bringing our pride for, um, what worked for us back then. Is it beneficial to us today? You know, and being really honest with our conversations and our conclusions also. Um, we are in a crisis in the harm reduction movement, not because of, you know, um, just the approaches, but because we have a new set of people coming in, you know, a new set of people who some have their own agenda. Um, some don't know what's going on um, and others just want money. Right. Um, so we at a time where we really have to have the hard discussions. We have to go back to to the conversations surrounding language and, you know, cultural humility and all of that. We have to go back to it now um, because if we don't, you know what, just just the harm reduction field in general um, is just is not going to be no more. And everything that we worked for over these last 25, 30 years is going to be for nothing. 
um, because it's just going to get wrapped into a whole nother movement, you know, because even right now, the abstinence based um, model is changing, is changing. And new people who have no lived or living experience who aren't impacted are the ones stepping into like the, the roles that matter the most. Um, we don't see our people in these conversations as much as we used to back in the day either. Um, so we have to put our stuff to the side, our beliefs, and we have to come up with a new belief, one that's going to work for everybody, where nobody gets left out or written out. Thank you so much, Jose. Um, I guess I'll share it for me, just uh, my my personal sort of mission and vision for all of the work that I do, um, and this is personally and professionally, right, is at the end of the day to try to show everyone that I can possibly reach that they have pathways to exploring themselves and their relation to the world and others in it in ways that could bring all of us into inner and collective resonance and celebration, right? I believe that we as beings having a human experience, right, are facilitators and participants, ideally in intra, interpersonal, and collective liberation and service of ourselves and each other. And I think that really honing in on and emphasizing this conversation um, and action, more importantly, around harm reduction is absolutely in service of that. And I just so appreciate being in these spaces, although they only go so far, and I look forward to moving further and beyond them uh, as well. Thank you. Yeah, y'all are amazing. I mean, I think last thoughts for me is really just thanking all of y'all for being brilliant. And Tim, thank you for bringing us all together. You know, I mean, I think that self-agency is so important. Treating others the way they want to be treated is so important. You know, my my entry point to this work was sort of realizing that, you know, uh, the only thing I'm an expert on is myself. Um, I'm not an expert on anything else. The only thing I'm an expert on is myself. And that was helpful in self-awareness. And then it also got me thinking, well, well, then that means I'm not an expert on anyone else because they're the experts on themselves. And if everyone's the expert on themselves, then what we really need to start doing is listening and giving them the agency and the consent to self-identify and to guide their own paths. We have to give up this sort of like driving of my way is the only way. It is not. It is not. You've got to remove uh, yourself and your ego. And I think Jose said pride, which was great, right? Remove that from that equation and allow folks to be the experts on themselves because they are. And, uh, and yeah, thank y'all. Appreciate it so much. Yeah, really great final thoughts. Um, so just a big thank you to the three of you for, for participating in this. Uh, again, that's Jose Martinez from National Harm Reduction Coalition. Check out his group, Cure Up, if you haven't already. I know there's plenty of information around about it. Um, and then a big thank you as well to Shane McDonald and Artelo St. Amour, uh, both from Youth Move National. Um, and a thank you to Azime Nimahai, who unfortunately couldn't be here with us, um, but was a really excellent contributor in the original panel as well. Um, so thank you for your time today. And I hope... Uh, Hope people are walking away uh, still with more to chew on. Uh, so just a big thanks. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org or wherever you find your podcasts.
Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.